Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. If you've been around for a while in the feminist book club world, you probably know how much we love Scorched Grace by Margot Duahi. Well, our favorite nun is back with the second installment in the Sister Holiday mystery series, Blessed Water. So are you a fan of mysteries? Okay, what about queer mysteries? With a punk rock, foul-mouthed, chain-smoking, tattooed nun with a gold tooth and a heart of gold as the detective. The kind with exquisite pacing that you can really just devour in one sitting. In Blessed Water, Sister Holiday teams up with former fire inspector Magnolia Riveau as they discover the body of a priest in the Mississippi River in New Orleans. You can feel the clock tick as the story unfolds in three suspenseful acts, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. And like us at Feminist Book Club, Sister Holiday despises sexism, white supremacy, homophobia, and institutional corruption, and she takes them on headfirst. She's a character who embraces her contradictions and sees her faith as one and the same as her queerness. Author Margot Duahi is also passionate about the reparative potential of crime fiction. Blessed Water is her queer alternative to copaganda that permeates this genre, and a healing balm to anyone who has been harmed by institutions like the Catholic Church. Blessed Water is out March 12, 2024 from Gillian Flynn Books, an imprint of Sando Projects. Yeah, that's right. Gillian Flynn, the author of Gone Girl, put her stamp of approval on this queer nun mystery series, and we are so glad she did. Did we also mention Mara Wilson narrates the audiobook? Yeah, Mara Wilson of Matilda fame. We're smitten. Fall in love <laughs> with this delightfully weird, deliciously gay, and devoutly righteous book series. Thanks to Margo Duahi for sponsoring this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Feminist Book Club podcast. Uh, my name is Taylor Simon. I'm one of the contributors, and I'm here today with Shayla Lawson, author of How to Live Free in a Dangerous World. Yes, Live Free in a Dangerous World. All that came to my mind was a decolonial memoir. That's totally fine. Too. Yes. yes. Uh, I am so the author I'm... of a decolonial memoir. Yes, yes, I got the second part. <laughs> um, so I'm super excited to chat with Shayla today. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the book and why you felt like you needed to get your story out in the world in this way? Well, this book is an incredible journey. I love that it's a journey that you can start in any place. It's not a traditional memoir and that you read the first chapter and then you get to the 17th chapter and you find yourself in one concrete story. This is a book about what it's like to move around the world. And that includes lots of different states of moving. It involves time travel. It involves transitioning between states of being as much as it's about sitting and meeting brand new people and learning different things from that experience. That is, yeah, that's that's what the book has going on. <laughs> I definitely got that sense. I was like, okay, we start with the first, but then it's like, we are moving with you through time, through journeys, through space. So I I really like that aspect. And something that I really connected to was 
your thoughts around intimacy. So you wrote in your chapter on intimacy. Intimacy is not about the fact we need each other. It's about facing the fact that we are each other. And I just like, I was just like, woo. And every time somebody asked me what I was reading, I would open to that highlighted part. So I guess it was something that I really needed to hear over and over again. And I'm just like, let me just read you this snippet. And this will tell you all you need to know about like the gems that are in this book. But I wanted to ask, do you feel like writing this book was an intimate experience in a way and how so? And then the second part of my question is, I felt like you kept a lot about your life private and I definitely respected that. How did you discern what you kept to yourself and what you shared through your story? The book was a deeply intimate process, even just the act of writing it, because so much of it, I was I was really struggling with my health at the time. So I had to record it. I would just sit my cell phone on my chest and speak into it. And that became my writing process. And much of what we are reading when it comes to the final draft are recordings of me thinking about this book as a survival guide. What were all the stories I would want to tell? If this was the last book that I had the opportunity to share ideas through, and uh, there were many points on the journey that this book took me towards that it was looking like that might be the case in terms of my physical health. So I don't hold a whole lot back. What I hold back often is stories in which I might not have a chance to give the whole picture of who a person is within my perspective of how a story works. I definitely prefer to frame a story in a situation in which my messiness is on display, but not necessarily the other person's, unless that other person is in a situation in which they definitively could act as a teachable moment for somebody else to learn from, you know? And one one time someone asked me, what is the marker between when you use a real name in the book versus when you use an alias? And um, typically I write in a way where I don't need to use aliases because I like, I like shouting out the people who are doing beautiful things but might not get noticed on an everyday basis. But then every now and then, if there is a creeperton that I have to try and, and protect because they made some mistakes in the moment, then I will include a, an alias or remove a name in order to, to protect people. But yeah, when it comes to my life, I am literally at this point an open book. This is my, sorry, I lose track. This is either my fifth or sixth. <laughs> I mean, let me give it. Yes, it's. I believe it's my fifth. But I think the reason why it's so hard for me to make the differentiation is because I'm already in the lab working on some new stuff that really excites me that I already, you know, I'm already just manifesting and seeing taking over the world quite soon. But with this book being my fifth, if we're looking at just the the evolution of storytelling that keeps happening every time I get to approach the page, these were a compendium of stories that felt uniquely important for me to write as I grew older. And I started to realize coming out of the pandemic, 
think in watching so many people struggle with different forms of chronic illness, whether it was born out of long COVID or related to having to, to just deal with this, this worldwide medical crisis that was affecting us all in lots of different tiers and in different ways, whether it be mental or physical uh, or spiritual or beyond. I wanted a book that really reflected some of the conversations that I saw brewing over the last four years and how I might be able to put my own spin on that, whether it be the official adoption of a capital B Black myth to the level of the New York Times or the conversations that people are having regarding gender identity and the use of pronouns, the ways that we think about chronic illness and sexuality. You know, what does it mean to be chronically ill to be coming out of a chronically ill time for the world and then still want to be sexual people to find erotic enjoyment in our bodies and how do we start to come together and have different conversations about what it means for us to liberate each other not just through movements not just through what we post on our social feeds but what does liberation look like on the level of who we get to sit down and share a meal with and how we enjoy our time. And those were all things that were really born from me looking at what coming out of the pandemic felt like for all of us. And now that we were itching to get back in the world, travel took on a different lens. It wasn't just about, here's a bunch of places I visited. It was also about, here are the ways that I have learned invaluable lessons about the things that we just managed to come through as a people and hear ways that we can look at stories of being in places and learn how to thrive. And that's exactly what I got from reading the book and kind of like your response just now really embody what you said about like intimacy, like facing the fact that we are each other because in your response, it felt like you going through like your personal lessons was the same as like what we are going through collectively. What came up for me a lot while reading the book too, because of that interchange between like the personal and the collective, I would see a lot of themes on how you identified personally and how that related to how others perceive you through that identity. So I wanted to ask, what do you believe is that relationship between identity and perception? And how did it play a role in writing your book? Yeah, and, and, and to a larger point, you know, what does that mean for our collective racial consciousness? Because one of the reasons why gender identity was really important for me to bring up in the book is because of approaching it from the lens of travel meant being exposed to people who came from cultures that might be indigenous to me, but as an African American, I'm not super close to, or that have a lot of allyship with me. So for instance, uh, my friends who are Nigerian, but Yorba, or my friends who are Rwandan, my friends who are from the Philippines, you know, all of these cultures that we have a unique bond with in African-Americanness, but I've never considered the fact that pronoun usage was something that they adopted in taking on the English language, you know? And that's not a historical reference point, it's a contemporary reference point that there's so much contention around the potential of changing pronouns when there's so many languages that are indigenous to us as people of color that never use them that it was another part 
of this colonial imprisonment for us to make a decision to say that we are he or she. And the reason why that binary is particularly important when we're looking at us as people of color is because it's been used to keep us out for so long. So for so long as a writer, I felt this responsibility that because I presented so femme in these very Eurocentric ways that I needed to ignore the parts of me that were really screaming to be listened to that I talk about in the book, you know, that I, you know, I personally identify as rock star and I don't say that in a joking way. I mean that, you know, when you put together like Prince and billions of light years of stars, like that is where I feel the most comfortable as an identity, you know, that I love Gen Z for making the opportunity available for someone like me coming out of an older generation, being a millennial to take a stance and say, these, this was language that wasn't available to me. These weren't conversations that were happening when I was young, but absolutely, I'd love to see us participate on, in them on larger levels. So I love to think of it less a conversation of gender and more just focus on the identity part. So in the same way that when Malcolm X took on the X to replace Little on the on the road to El Shabazz, what he was saying was that there was so much more learning he needed to do that was taken away from what he was allowed as identity as a full human. And I also believe that in terms of what I have come to understand of what it means to limit our identity to these categories simply because of the language that we've inherited through colonialism. I think there's a real conversation that can be had if we get we remove the gender aspect in this very hard fixed way and think about the fact that you know I'm I'm as thin as little Richard was. <laughs> you know, I'm as thin as Prince was. I'm as thin as Grace Jones still is, you know, like Blackness has always been outside of the binary in these very celebratory, loud ways that we still have difficulty categorizing. And so I like thinking of Blackness itself as non-binary in ways that I think really celebrates the ways that we universally have changed, changed the future. You know, Blackness is always in so many ways futuristic, no matter how far back we go or how far forward we go. And I love that this is just an acknowledgement of that journey. Just when I was at, um, on my book tour this week, I had um, a Yorba woman come up to me and say, yeah, that when she moved to America, it was really hard for her to get used to the idea of these definitions, you know, and that's not an old battle, you know, or necessarily a new battle. This is this is language that has existed for a very long time that I would just like us to consider returning to if we want to return home, if we want to start traveling the world and seeing what it means for us to be part of a global citizenship, we have to be able to remove the frame that these ideas we've held on to are ones that are make salient travel companions. Because one of my biggest points in the book is like, a lot of this rigid thinking doesn't travel well. It doesn't fit well in your suitcase to, to travel around the world and have very fixed ideas that you want to impute on other people. But it does travel well when you're curious and you're open and you can be anybody you want to be as soon as you step into a new environment. So who do you want to be, you know, as opposed to who you're told you have to be? It's one of those things that I've gotten out of a decolonial travel mindset.
I really love how you equate blackness to non-binary because absolutely like like you're right like we've always been like well Lil not Nas X but before that um he wore a dress on his album cover and like black people like flip their shit like yes and why am I yes yes <laughs> yes but like yes. I, like even like that it's like it's like interesting with like this colonial mindset sometimes that black people go through about like oh no like that's not that's not but it's always been us and how we when we return to ourselves before colonization that's when we do all of the trend setting and like celebrate our like differentness like you said like the little richards and prince and like when black people aren't afraid to be themselves like that's really truly how we build the future I did want to ask you, uh, so I noticed in the book, sometimes Black was not capitalized, sometimes Black was capitalized. So can you explain the difference when you are referring to things as big capital B Black and little B Black? Absolutely. So in the book, I want to make an argument for the differentiation between Blackness versus Blackness that there are points in which our relationship to Blackness, capital B Blackness as this culture that is things like Martin Luther King Jr. and the discovery of hip hop and this, you know, this compendium of what is Black culture is often associated with African-Americanness. And we as African-Americans are very slow to understand the limitations that that puts on our communication with the larger Pan-African diaspora. Um, I took this note from, from some of my traveling, for instance, while I was working on that chapter, I was in Senegal um, and I was um, lecturing at this beautiful international dance school. And one of the students raised their hand and they're interested about knowing my work, you know, at what point was I interested in actually addressing the larger diaspora? Um, and I took that as a call to action. And one of the things that I learned is that difference. That's exactly what the student was talking about, is that when I write about Black girl culture, am I writing about her culture, you know? And is she included? Because for a long time, we have, have done a lot of the same kind of discrimination against people who are coming from diversely, uh, diversely Black backgrounds, whether it be from the Caribbean or whether it be from uh, the continent um, or beyond, because we, we're everywhere. And I want us to think in very punk rock ways about what it means to have a lowercase e still be a part of our canon. We don't have to decide. We don't have to be either or. We don't have to take this category and say, it's a victory that people are now capitalizing black so there's not just a color without losing the significance of one of the things that we're tied to is, is black in this very anti-establishment way that is about our color. And that there's so much more nuanced work that you can do when traveling if you can tell the difference between when you need to be the black person who stands up and speaks against things that that work against blackness versus the opportunities that we have to 
just be a black person looking at art and going to exhibits and, and spending our time figuring out exactly who we are and how our blackness defines us. Because I'm, I'm sure, you know, so many of us who grew up in America, whether we were African-American, first generation, um, or, or had just moved here, you know, it's always that conversation of your black card can be taken away, you know, like you can't take away anybody's blackness, you know, you can take away capital B blackness because it keeps that American hierarchy of you have to be able to prove these things about yourself to say that you have citizenship in this country and being black is not a country you know being black is a privilege and there's so much that we can explore within that privilege there's so many people that we can talk to and converse with when we open ourselves up to the idea that it's not just about being black in the ways that we have to protect ourselves as african americans um in a country that has done everything that they can to try and destroy and humiliate us. There are billions of people that are representations of what it means for for blackness when we think of it in the uh, the lowercase way to be the global majority. You know that opens us up to thinking about our our brown brothers in um, Samoa in Southeast Asia. You know because that's all all of that color is coming from the African diaspora. You know. When we think about our, our brothers and sisters that are in Australia, you know, who have had very similar significant strides in terms of, of discrimination and ways that they fought it. What happens if we all link, you know, and we can't necessarily do that if it's a status that we feel suspicious of or that we feel like we can take away if somebody doesn't act exactly the way that they're supposed to on paper. So I like decolonizing um that capital B because the capital also is capitalist. You know, it's a it's a conglomerate of the ways that we have to fit into a capitalist framework of what blackness means for our significance. When that lowercase B is just letting us be. I'm gonna be digesting and marinating that like for the rest of the week. Just play it back. Like <laughs> Yes, like oh right, my right, gosh. Because right, I was one of those people who fought for the capital B. I'm like I you everything's being corrected with the capital b but like when you said like even it yes the the black the capital b as being capitalist oh my god okay it is yes it it took it took going to the continent and having the you know having our family over there explain to me that that capital b is still like that's still capitalist because i fought for it too you know so i have to humbly make a retraction or an not an retraction but an amendment to to my beliefs and that's what traveling can do for you you know um we don't have to go places to travel we can talk to folks through the internet now in ways that were never at our disposal before and these are conversations i'd love to see diversely black people starting to have oh my gosh me too and yes like just the just like the different ways that you analyzed and like broke down the different things that you learned on your travel feels very like like you coming with a deep knowing of yourself so in your chapter on love you discuss the difference between like love and falling in love and the way I kind of perceive like 
how you explain it is that falling in love is like the surface, the surface level attraction. It's just like what you see to alert you that, okay, like, I think I'm attracted to this person. I think I'm falling in love with this person, but love is being like an action and just knowing someone deeply and choosing them anyway. So would you say that this book is a love story with yourself or a journey of falling in love with yourself or both? Absolutely. I would say it is a, it is a love story. It's a love letter to the world about how I've fallen in love with myself. And in the process of falling in love, I have lifted myself up and learned to love myself because that's the only thing wrong with falling in is that once you fall, somebody needs to catch you. Somebody needs to be there to lift you up. Otherwise, the love is just surface. It's once somebody lifts you up that the love is happening. And that is definitely how I feel about myself and what I want to communicate when it comes to my thoughts on the world. I love that. So we're coming up on time, but I wanted to ask you these like two last questions. One is, what have you read lately that has really impacted you? Because, you know, we're the feminist book club, so we always have to have some expansion to our TBRs. <laughs> Ooh, and, that, and I love to read. So I've been reading the... Broken Oaths Trilogy by N.K. Jemisin, which I'm loving for all of the science fiction allegorical relationships to what our future might be. I also really want more feminists to take a look at so Sophie Cowell's Take Care of Yourself. It's one of my absolute favorite art books. You probably want to see if you can find it at a, a local library because it's a doozy. But it is the response, somebody broke up with her through email and she is uh, this French con contemporary artist. And the last line of the email was saying, take care of yourself. And so the way that she did was to get women, parents, <laughs> children, you know, non-binary people, just to get every, get the world responding to that letter. And each version is their own kind of uh, FU love letter back to Sophie Cal. You know, it's like returning all the love that she should be receiving from this person who can only break up to, with her through email. And I love the idea that the thesis of the project is he told me to take care of myself. And so I did. <laughs> and that's what I would love to see all of us do with our art is take care of ourselves. I love that. That's just Mm, I aspire to be that level of artistic. I try. <laughs> <laughs> I love artistic mystery. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then my last question is just where can people find you and more of your work? Um, yeah, come follow me on uh, Substack or Instagram using my name, Shayla Lawson. And I also just love hearing from people by email. And all of my books, you can find at wherever your favorite place is to purchase your Feminist Book Club inquiries. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Shayla, for joining us on the podcast today. I had a blast talking to you. And like I said, I'm going to be marinating on like so much that you said today for like, honestly, probably the rest of my life, but at least for the rest of this week. 
Fantastic. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature.